If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We want to pick up our study in verse 13 uh, through verse 25. And again, look, look at our topic. People, Peter, that is, excuse me. Peter says, be ye holy for I am holy. And it's a direct quotation out of the book of Leviticus. And as I shared with you, I remember uh, coming to that place of trying to understand how can I be holy? I know I'm a sinful man. That's easy for me to understand. I think each one of us can ascribe to that this morning. Well, I understand I am a sinful person, but I've come to saving grace now. And praise the Lord because we've come to saving grace. And so now uh, we're exhorted in love and compassion. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. And holiness is a way of life. We're going to share that this morning. I want to give you two positions of holiness. The word holy and the word holiness is twofold in the scriptures. Number one, there is a ceremonial holiness. The things that you would do for God that are considered holy, such as we came to worship this morning. And it's a form of holiness. We come to prayer, and that's a form of holiness. Uh, we serve the Lord. That's another form of holiness. We might share his love to others. And again, all of these are forms of outward holiness. And you can also describe that performing holy things unto God or separated things unto God. Because that's what holiness means. Now listen to the next interpretation. Holiness or holy is one's, one's life that is found in Christ. That's the position of holiness. This type of holiness, the Greek word is used for holy or holiness, uh, hagios. And the word hagios means to be separated unto God and consecrated to him. And so the separation that takes place is, is God separates us from sin. I'm a sinful man, you're a sinful man. You're a sinful woman, and God calls you to separation. You're not the same person anymore. There has to be change. There has to be transformation. The word is metamorphosis. And I have seen uh, in the last 30 years of ministry how God takes a drug addict or he takes a whoremonger or he can take a liar. And God transforms them. He changes them. My testimony was a drunkard. God changes a life. He takes a heart and he gives you a new heart. And so he calls us into separation from sin and now consecration to God. I belong to God. You belong to God. And so we need to start living for the Lord. And holiness is just separation. There was a time when I thought holiness is, you know, folding your hands. Holiness is, is putting on, you know, some robes. Holiness is not even smiling. And the Puritans, the, the, the more, you know, you hung your face down... They say, oh, this is a holy man. And when I saw that, I saw people that are trying to be holy. That's painful. We come to holiness because of salvation. We should have, listen to me, the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. And so God calls us to that place of holiness. And so let's begin here in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 1. Look at verse 13. Therefore... And he uses an Old Testament terminology, a New Testament ter terminology. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now, the girding up the loins, the best way for us in our Western mind, 21st century mind, somebody might tell you, hey, it's time to tighten the belt. It's time to pull that belt in. And it's time to get right. And let's pursue the things of what we're speaking about this morning. Holiness. But I want you to think about girding up the loins in the time of the New Testament. And they would wear these long flowing gowns. You've all seen pictures of them. And generally around the midsection they wore a sash. And so they would take their gowns and it was time to work. It was time to run, maybe, or it was time to battle an enemy. And it would be very difficult because, basically, it looked like you were wearing a long dress, the skirt and such. But you would take it in and draw it forward. And then you would draw the sides in. 
And then you would take that sash and tighten it up, and you were able to run. You were able to work, and you wouldn't trip over it. But I want you to see what uh, he is saying here. The girding up of the loins was understood by those in the early church because of the flowing gowns. They would take the sash, pull it in, and so Peter is saying, tighten up your mind. Be sober. Listen to the word sober. Watchful. Be alert. Be aware. All because the group that he's speaking to were those that were in the great diaspora. They were scattered. They left their homeland, not by choice, because of Roman oppression. And they were going through hard trials. And so gird up the loins because of your trials. Now rest in your hope, your hope. On your God-given grace, you've come to saving grace. Grace is unmerited favor. I deserve judgment, but he gives me salvation. And here is the promise. Because you're being brought into this new revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, to the end of time. To the end of time. And church, when you go through a trial, that's the hardest time to really gird yourself and say, okay, Lord, I'm tightening up the belt. Right now in Southern California, a lot of our family members are losing their jobs. My brother lost a job. My brother-in-law lost a job. So many people. I mean, everybody's angry at Arnold Schwarzenegger. What a, a governor. And it's not his fault. But the economy is just hard. And you know, they, they always say, well, how's it going in New Mexico? Well, it's the same. Everybody's poor. We don't know any different. But boy, when you come from, you know, where the silver spoon was in your mouth and it's been taken away, it's a hard concept. My brother said, I have not collected unemployment in over 35 years. And usually if he was laid off or, uh, you know, changing jobs, he would get something in a couple of weeks. My brother-in-law, it's been two years now, going on two and a half years. And so the hardship, and here's Peter telling them, you're going through your trial, tighten up the belt. Trust in the Lord. You're a holy people. God's going to take care of you. And that sometimes is easier said than done. Now, when it comes to trials, listen to this verse. In Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Paul the Apostle speaks about as Peter's saying, it's time to gird yourself. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's the love of God that keeps me going. And then Paul says, shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall, shall famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. What can separate us from the love of God? No matter what I'm going through. Right now in our fellowship, the Campos family is suffering. I just spoke with Lupa, the wife. I go, how are you doing? Is there a chance you might be in church? She says, I just can't get out of bed this morning. I am just struggling. Her boy that was led out of the hospital and the funeral service is ready for Wednesday, she had to put him back in the hospital. He had a relapse. And he's going through his pain. The two sisters are going through their pain. And here's mom being pressured, you know, are we still having the funeral service? I told her, I said, Lupe, you do what you need to do. But put your trust in the Lord. What a time to tell her, gird up your loins. Trust God. She is in the biggest trial that she's ever been in her life. And any of you have ever lost a loved one, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But Paul says, what's going to separate you? from the love of God and he goes into it and he says basically tribulation distress of life persecution the early church was being persecuted famine conditions third world countries nakedness perils and it's just troubles hardship pain or sword for the first 300 years in the early church over 6 billion estimated that were killed at the hands of Rome. Talk about a trial. And yet, we're called to holiness. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, how do we stay in this place of 
holiness unto God. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, the desires, the wants, the pleasures of life, as your, you did in ignorance. Our ignorance, we did these things, our B.C. days before Christ. And so here's Peter exhorting the ones of the great diaspora. They're scattered now. Obey the Lord. Now listen to this. As children are obedient to their parents. And we're basically supposed to be obedient to our parents. And so now we come to saving grace and we are to be obedient to our heavenly father, which is in heaven. And you ask the question, well, why? So we don't slip. We don't become castaways. And many times that's by choice. The Greek don't fashion yourself, don't conform yourself, don't pattern yourself as in former lifestyle. You've come to saving grace. We did those things ignorantly. When I came to saving grace, I had to make a stand. Okay, this is what I was doing in the world, but now I've come to saving grace, and I've been called to holiness. I have to do this. And the scriptures tell us what to do. And so here's Peter quoting. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. It's not an easy task. It can be so hard. But the things that we did in our past were in ignorance. But now that we know it's not in ignorance, listen, it is called sin. And so we have to transform. We have to change. We have to come, listen, to the other side. And that's the side of holiness. Now he goes on and he begins this position of holiness. Look at verse 15. But as he, speaking of Christ, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now the word conduct, in all your manner of life, be ye holy. Now for the longest time, I separated church from my workplace. I separated church from the things I did outside. But the Bible says... I'm a Christian 24-7, and I'm to be in that position of holiness. And so Peter reminds them, the church in the early days, but what about us? He's reminding us also, God has called you, he's chosen you, he's elected you to saving grace. We spoke about election last week. He's called us to that place of grace. Now, we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. Not of works. If we got saved by works, we would boast of it. You know what I did to get saved? But you come to unmerited favor. And the word grace has always floored me. It means unmerited favor. I deserve judgment. But he gives me his grace. He is holy. Jesus is set apart from his heavenly father at death. And now he comes to that place. And he tells us, you also must be holy. Listen, the word holy again, you must be separated. You're all your conduct and pastime. Separation. Come to that place of salvation. The King James uses the word, instead of conduct, uses the word conversation. And the word in the Greek is behavior. Your way of life, your manner of life. As a Christian, we are called unto holiness. Separation from our sin and now consecration unto God. You're not yourself anymore. You belong to the Lord. You're a Christian. And I heard this years ago. Then act like a Christian. A true Christian is to be Christ-likeness. You see, I will never be Christ. I'm not achieving to be Christ. There are some that teach that. But I want to be more like Jesus every day. I desire to be like Christ. If Christ is holy, then I should be called to holiness. Now, to be Christ-likeness, what is the best word to describe Jesus? I believe the best word is love. It's agapeo love, divine love. So if Jesus has love... That's what I want. I need to have love and compassion and grace for others, for those around me. Tomorrow morning as a Christian, you're going to be tested. Show grace, show love, show compassion towards that boss that chewed you out on Friday. 
and maybe picks it back up on Monday morning. And then you're supposed to show compassion and grace. You want to lash back. And then you read those scriptures and Jesus said, turn the other cheek. I've turned the other cheek. When's it my turn? This place of being Christ-likeness, it's, it's a manner of life. It's a way of life. It's something that I live. It's something that I am. I want to be more Christ-likeness. This is true holiness. Now, he gets into it where it came from. And remember, this is Peter, a simple fisherman. Look at verse 16. Because it is written, and he's bringing it forth from the Levitical law. Be holy, for I am holy. Now, to translate that, be separated because I am separated. That's all the Lord is saying. He takes it from Leviticus chapter 11. I want to read it to you, verse 44 and verse 45. He says, for I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy. For I am holy, neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 45, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. He says the same thing in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses and he said, in verse 2, it says, Speak to all the congregation, Moses, of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for the Lord your God am holy also. Not an easy task. He says it one more time, Leviticus 20, and verse 7. Consecrate, listen, the word holiness. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And so here we're reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Be holy, for I am holy. He's taking it right from the Old Testament. Now, there would be a time I would have responded, well, that's Old Testament theology. That's what they need to learn. And that's what was in the Levitical law. But Jesus, in speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to pick up on this. It's a simple verse. And the Sermon on the Mount is taken from Matthew chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. And he's speaking to the church. It actually begins in chapter 5, 6, and 7. Instructions to the church. The Sermon on the Mount. And he comes to this passage. Mark it down. Matthew 5, verse 48. But he doesn't use the word holiness. He says, be ye therefore perfect. And then he says, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Now, I struggled with the word holiness. Because there's no holiness in me. But I find out it's a way of life. It's separation from sin and now consecrated unto God. So then I come to the Sermon on the Mount. And I struggle with this. How can I be perfect? I'm an imperfect person. That's why I came to Christ. And so Jesus says, be ye therefore perfect. Even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Now, listen to the translation. Because remember, the Greek, or the New Testament is written in Greek. So a lot of times we make the translation, and we understand it. Be ye complete. That's the word perfect. Be ye complete. Now, we know that Jesus is complete. We know that he completed his mission, if you may, at the cross. He died, he was buried, and the third day he rose again, there was a 40-day post-resurrection, and then the ascension into heaven. The Bible says now, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for you and I. But what about me? The Greek in the text is saying you're being completed. I'm not complete by a long shot. You're not complete. I mean, just when you might think, you know what, I'm getting pretty good at this completeness, and then you fail miserably. This is why we need Christ. And this is why we need the leading of the Holy Spirit. I'm not complete. I'm not done. But listen to the translation. As I go through my last 30 years of ministry, my last 30 years of walking with the Lord, I'm being completed. Our good friend, Manny Campos, that was such a, a strong part of our church, Manny gave his life to the Lord many years ago. Well, he stands before the throne room of God today. We haven't even had, uh, you know, his funeral service. We're going to have a memorial service. But Manny has gone home to be with the Lord. He's complete now. Well, we're striving at that. 
We're being completed every day. And I thank the Lord. You see, I am wholly separated unto God, but I'm not completed yet. I will be one day. And so the beautiful part that he's giving us here, don't forget these words because it's so easy to go to the Levitical law and say, well, what do you mean by that? That's Old Testament theology. But Jesus says, be ye therefore perfect, complete, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. He's calling us into that relationship of perfection. Oh, I am not perfect. I am not perfect but I am striving. That's what I want. I don't know about you, but when I sin, and I do, it frustrates me. Lord, I, I don't want to do that anymore. I did that in ignorance. We already shared that in time past my BC days, but I've come to Christ. Lord, when am I going to be set free? When you go home to be with the Lord. Oh, I, honestly, I know some people think, well, you Christians are morbid. You're always looking to that day you're going to be with the Lord. I mean, that's our hope. That's our hope. The early church hoped that Jesus would come in their time. The church for the last 2,000 years, that's been our hope. Hey, listen, our hope is not in the economy of this world. Your hope is not in the economy. If you live in Greece, they're going broke. You live in California, if you got a job, you're blessed. My hope is in Christ, and he's going to use financial gain in just a minute. But we have been called to holiness. Next week, we're going to share this verse, and this is a verse I struggled with. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You can just look at it with me. The Bible says we are a peculiar people. In a good sense, not in a weird sense. Oh, man, that, wow, he is peculiar. Hey, we're all peculiar. But listen to the translation. If you look at the Greek text, sometimes our King James can just leave us hanging out there. God calls us, and he says, you are a peculiar people. The translation, you're precious. Now, that makes a lot of sense. You're precious because you have been a purchased possession, and you were paid for with the blood of Christ. With the blood of Christ. That's why I'm peculiar. That's why you're peculiar. You're different. You're separated. You're holy. You're consecrated unto God. And, you know, people out there, well, you guys are Jesus freaks. Hey, before I was a Jesus freak, I was a dope freak. Before I was a Jesus freak, I was an alcoholic freak. Before I was a Jesus freak. You can, they don't like to hear that. But whatever you were in your past, that's what you were dedicated to. That's what we were freaks to. And so we come to Christ. I tell you what, uh, a good friend of mine years ago said, you know what, Bob, you guys use Jesus as a crutch. And I said, you know what, you're correct. What do you use for a crutch? There was a time when Johnny Walker Red was my crutch. There was a time when Budweiser was my crutch. There was a time that oh, I would buy dope to sell it. That was my crutch. Whatever your sin nature was, that's your crutch. But you come to saving grace, I desperately need Jesus. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Now he goes on, look at verse 17. And if you call on the Father... And I love this, who is without partiality, judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. But we're going to translate that word fear. I'm not afraid that God's up there with a giant mallet ready to smash Bob as soon as he blows it. But the fear of the Lord, listen, is the reverence of God, acknowledging who he is. And because I fear the Lord, because I reverence the Lord, I want to stay and remain in holiness. I don't want to go back to my time past, my B.C. days that I did, Peter said, in ignorance. Come to that place of holiness. So here in verse 17, Peter is speaking to believers. He's speaking to those that have been dispersed because of the trial. People of prayer, people who call on God for their needs. And God is without partiality, favoritism. Listen, I love this. God hears 
my prayers and God hears your prayers. I love that. When we pray corporately, there was a time I would think, well, is God listening to me? There's all kinds of people here. Everybody's praying. How does God discern all these things? How does he know it's Bob praying? That's the power of God. God is all-knowing. He knows all things. One of my pastor friends, he says, I've got that all down to a science. I pray late at night when everybody's asleep. And then another pastor told him, well, what about the Chinese? They're praying because it's all different. He goes, never thought of that. God hears our prayers at any time. He hears your prayers. He hears mine. There's no partiality in God. He hears my prayers. He hears your prayers. Listen to it. His judgments are righteous. He will judge according to our works. I am not saved by works. I am saved by grace through faith. But works come automatically after my salvation. Now, there's a passage that Paul teaches. And he says that one day, all of our works will be cast into the fire. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. Now, everybody hangs on to that and says, well, uh, some of my works aren't that good. Don't worry about that. You've come to saving grace. But then our works are going to be judged one day. They'll be cast into the fire. Listen to this. Paul says, whatever is silver, gold, and precious stone, that's going to be your reward. But some of our works are wood, hay, and stubble. They're going to burn up. So I come to saving grace. The Bible says I am holy, I am separated, but then I really never brought good works to the table. Maybe I just got saved a couple of weeks ago, and then I died. What happens to me? Hey, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Even if all of my works are burned up in the fire, I am still saved. You see, that's the beauty. I don't have to go door to door on Saturdays. I don't have to ride my 10-speed for a two-year span. Those are works. I admire them, but I look at them and I say, man, you don't need to do that. But they do. Every young Mormon has to pedal for two-year span. And every good Jehovah's Witness has to knock on doors Saturday after Saturday. I thank the Lord that we come to saving grace, period. But then God will judge our works that we do after. Hmm. He hears my prayers. He hears your prayers. He says, conduct yourself in your manner of life. The time you spend here on earth, let it be in fear, in reverence of the Lord, in reverence of who he is. I don't want to sin anymore. A wise man is known by what and whom he fears. You see, I don't fear man. I fear the Lord. I don't fear Satan. I fear the Lord. Mark this down. Psalm 111, verse 10. Listen to what the psalmist says. The fear of God, the reverence of God, is the beginning of wisdom. I don't even fear judgment because I've come to saving grace. And God calls us to that place of holiness. Now, look at verse 18. He gives us the reason why we are a holy people. Knowing that you were not redeemed, listen, purchased with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received and this is a hard concept because we all have traditions. By the traditions from your forefathers, God redeemed us. He purchased us. He paid the full ransom with his precious blood. Oh, I love that. Not with things that decay or things that perish. His death, his blood is everlasting. It's eternal life in Christ. Peter says it again Back in verse 7, he said it again, and he says it now. Silver and gold is going to perish. Sometimes we put such an emphasis on our financial gain, and again, we need finances. I mean, who's going to pay the rent? 
Who's going to pay the light bill, et cetera, et cetera? Who's going to buy the food at Walmart or wherever you shop? So God is provider. The Bible says he's Jehovah Jireh. But your silver and gold will perish one day. Jesus' death and his blood that was shed at Calvary will never perish. For the last 2,000 years, his blood has been cleansing mankind. Peter reminds them, you were redeemed from the empty conduct, the empty manner of life you inherited. And here's the hard part, by the traditions that you received from your forefathers. Therefore, Trust in the holiness of God. Now, I had to share this in the first service, second service too now. We have good traditions and we have bad traditions. I mean, we all have our traditions. In our Hispanic culture, we have our traditions. And, you know, the Anglo cultures, you have your traditions. I happened to be in St. Patty's, the celebration of St. Patrick's Day. I was in New York with my friend. And his family, oh, man, they... St. Patty's, everything's about St. Patty's. And the corned beef was flowing. Now, I like that part of St. Patty's. But I did not understand that they would take, you know, and put green dye in their rivers. I go, wow, you guys are weird. But then what do we do in Cinco de Mayo? What do we do, you know, Fourth of July? We, we all have our traditions. But Peter is addressing the spiritual traditions that the Jews had and the Gentiles. Peter had to come to grips with that. Back in Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and God shows him a vision, and he says, Peter, you're in a Gentile house now. Don't judge what they eat. Now, your Jewish background, you'd understand this. Peter saw a rack of ribs. What do you do with that? Peter saw a ham. What do you do with that? Peter saw a ham sandwich. What do you do with that? I'm a Jew. I'm not supposed to have that. Peter, what I have cleansed, do not call common. Peter enjoyed it after. It's a hard concept. But the traditions. Come Christmas, we always have a ham. I asked my mom one day, why? She goes, I don't know. Ah, not just the ham. you got to have tamales. Now, you live here in the Southwest, you know what I'm saying. But mom, a ham and tamales, why? Because that's what your grandma did. Tradition. Fiddler on the Roof. Go see that movie. Tradition. It's all about tradition. And we hold on to these things. You were here for Easter week, and there's always those churches that have traditional, listen, foot washing services. But yet Jesus said, you see me doing this foot washing as an example unto you. Go and serve others also. Traditions are good, and traditions can also be evil. So we have to be very careful what takes place. And so banking on your silver and gold is not going to take it. And so we need to trust God. And when we're called to that place of holiness, we can't go wrong. We trust him. Look at verse 19. He's going to take it some more. But with the precious blood of Christ. And so here in verse 19, he clarifies what he's been talking about, redemption. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Now here was some of their traditions. You would come to the temple and you'd bring a turtle dove. You'd bring a lamb. And the religious sect would find a flaw. And think about it, a little turtle dove, and there would be a speck on his beak. Well, you can't offer that to the Lord. It has a blemish. You'd bring a lamb, and there'd be a little black spot. Sorry, there's a blemish there. But you have to buy our lamb. And Josephus writes to us in the historical writings, was angry because they were actually kicking the prices up. Where maybe last week, you know, you made an offering of a turtle dove for a buck or two. Now it's up to five bucks because of the traditions of man. And you have to be very careful. So here in verse 19, if we base our salvation, our hope, our eternal life on traditions, what we spoke of in verse 18, Peter says here, without the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, without blemish. In other words, Jesus was all man, but he was all God. He had no faults. 
He had no spots. He had no sin nature. Jesus is our complete sacrifice, our complete high priest. In Christ, we have everything. Just a couple of months back, we were in our study of the book of Hebrews. And we spent a good year in the book of Hebrews. And when you come to the book of Hebrews, listen to the theme of the book of Hebrews, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He is all we need. When you come to Hebrews chapter 10, the caption in my Bible says, animal sacrifice, insufficient, insufficient. You see, Jesus was accused of coming to destroy the law, but he says to the contrary, I came to fulfill the law. Jesus becomes the complete sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 10, he is our complete high priest. In Hebrews chapter 10, he is the complete sacrifice. Now, it's interesting. When you come to the last book in the Old Testament, it's the book of Malachi. Now, in your Bibles, you flip maybe one or two pages, and Matthew is there. And so we're so quick to go from Matthew to Malachi. But if you look at church history, at the conclusion of the book of Malachi, God did not speak to the nation anymore. There was 400 years of silence. It is called the dark ages, the silent years. Imagine that God did not speak to the nation for 400 years. And then you turn to Matthew now, 400 years later, and the Messiah is announced. Remember John the Baptist? He's in the Jordan Valley. He's getting ready to baptize those that were coming and receiving baptism, the remission of sins. He saw Jesus come. Jesus came, start his public ministry. He's going to get water baptized. John, the prophecy of the one heralder, the one that would cry in the wilderness, it was prophesied. John said, behold now, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. John said, the complete Lamb is Jesus Christ. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to complete the law. He is the redemption price. He is the blood sacrifice once and for all. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the Jews waited patiently for Yom Kippur. They still do. And that was the day you confessed all your sins for the whole year. But I love today that I come to Christ freely because he's died on the cross for me. Not because of the traditions of man, but what the scriptures have to say. Look at verse 20 now. Indeed, he indeed was foreordained, speaking of Christ, before the foundations of the world, but was manifested, made known in these last times or last days. Jesus was foreordained. Now, this is very important because so many times we place Jesus in the manger scene, Christmas. That's when we finally see baby Jesus. Well, Jesus always was and always will be. Jesus is God. Jesus was foreordained. The Greek is saying he was foreseen beforehand. Jesus was planned to die for the sins of all mankind. Before the foundations of the world, but was not manifested, he was not made known to mankind until these last 2,000 years. Jesus had been made known to mankind and to the church, the body of Christ. When you read, we're studying Genesis on Wednesday nights right now. When you go to Genesis 1-1, and we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's where man begins. Man begins to try to understand God at that point. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now we read from left to right. But I want you to take it to another extreme. I learned this from an old pastor friend. He says, go off the page. Go from right to left. Well, you can't. There's nothing there. That's right. Jesus was already there. And, and man fell in Genesis 3. Fell from the grace of God. Kicked out of the Garden of Eden. When you go to Genesis 3.15, God already makes a provision. Jesus is already the provision there. But 
Peter is saying, before the foundations of the world, God was always there with his son. And he already makes a provision, listen, for our sin. Oh, I love that. What an amazing God that we serve. And so Peter, through the Holy Spirit, listen, has the right to say, Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. He's called us into that place of holiness. Now, he's not finished yet. Look at verse 21. Who through him, speaking of Christ, believe in God. That's you and I this morning. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope, they're in God. They're in God. You know, there's a lot of people that put their faith in those that run for politics. And I believe we need to vote. And there are those that put their faith in their government. And I think you need to back up your government. And there are those that put their faith in a lot of things. You go to tomorrow to Wall Street, there's a lot of people that put their faith in their financial you know, deposits and their inheritance, what they're going to put money to work for. But those things are temporal. We've come to this place now. We believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him his glory. And our faith, our hope, listen, is in God through Jesus Christ now. Another translation of verse 21, maybe we can understand it better. Through Jesus Christ, you have come to trust. And what's the word trust? To have faith in God. And because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and gave him great glory, raised him up on high, your faith. And what's your faith again? Your trust and your hope can be placed confidently in God. I place my confidence, my trust, my faith in God. And there are those that don't believe, but they're the ones that have to deal with that. We come to that place where we must trust God. The Amplified Version says this, verse 21, through him you believe in, and he gives a little more amplified, you adhere to, you rely on, are saved by. He's speaking about God, who raised him, Christ, up from the dead, and gave him honor and glory, and so that your faith and your hope are centered, and listen, and are rested in God. My rest, and I hope your rest, is in God through Jesus Christ, who has given us that rest. Those of you that labor, come and I will give you rest, Jesus said. Oh, I love that. Last week we spoke about uh, heavenly inheritance, and I know I have that inheritance now. And I know that it will be complete one day. And I know that my faith, my trust is in God. And he calls me to that place of holiness. He calls me to that place of holiness. Now, how do I know these things? This is a crucial verse. John chapter 10 Verse 17 and 18. I want you to hear the promise now. In John chapter 10, it speaks about the great shepherd. And that great shepherd is Christ. In verse 17, Jesus says this. Therefore, my father loves me because I laid down. He says, I laid down my life that I may take it up again. In verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay down. This life, I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus chose to die on the cross for all mankind. Now, in his humanity, Jesus did not want to die on that cross. It's a hideous death. We read about his death in Isaiah chapter 53. When you study what took place on Easter week, before Jesus goes to the cross, we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays to the Father three times. He doesn't want to die on the cross. Father, if there be any other way, take this cup of death from me. But if not, let not my will be done, but your will be done. Three times. And Jesus finally succumbs. And he goes to the cross willingly. He dies for the sins of mankind. You see, church, Jesus dies 
there's a lot of people through the years, through the centuries, that have claimed deity, that have claimed to be God, but only one died, was buried. On the third day, he rose again. There was a 40-day post-resurrection, and then there was an ascension into heaven, and the Bible says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for me. Study 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We don't have time this morning, but Paul spends ample time through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks about the power, listen, the power of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, Paul says if there's no resurrection, then there's no hope for us. If there's no resurrection, there's no preaching for us. If there's no resurrection, there's no faith in us at all. If there's no resurrection, it's all vain, vanity. It's empty. It's futile. I come and I pray. I come and I hear the gospel. I come and I might give an offering. I come and, uh, you know, and I say, I want to help. I want to serve. I want to do worship. I want to do sound. I want to do ushering. I want to work in the back with the kids. If there's no resurrection, it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Paul says we would be men and women, listen, pitied, pitied. Jesus never rose from the dead. You guys pray for what? You guys give for what? You serve for what? But Jesus died. And then he rose again from the dead. That is the core of Christianity. Study 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 22. Since you have purified now, listen to this, your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren. Once the love of Christ comes in you, you can't but help, listen, but to love others. And sometimes we love them into the kingdom. Love one another fervently, Peter says, with a pure heart. With a pure heart. For many years before I came to the pulpit, I ministered in the prisons, in the jails, in street ministry. And I tell you what, I learned real quick. You go to the prisons. I went to the big prisons in Southern California. Tehachapi, Chino, and... Those guys know if you're real. Don't come in there, you know, and telling them about Jesus and you're not real. They will spot you. They will spot you. The same thing, a lot of guys in prison go to chapel because they don't want to get gang raped. They don't want to be beaten. They don't want to be taken care of. And so they do it temporal. They know that too. When you love, do it in sincerity. Do it in purity. Do it in holiness. Now, in verse 22, we have been saved. We have, we're being made perfect. We're being made holy by the Lord. Now love the brethren with sincere love. Unfeigned love, the King James says. Sincere or unhypocritical. Unhypocritical love, brotherly love, because we have God's love, agape love. He bestows in our hearts this phileo love for the brethren. I love you and you love me because of the love of Christ that he's put in us. It's not fake. It's not unfeigned. It's not hypocritical. It's true love of Christ. Even through your trials. Now imagine who Peter's writing to. Those in the great diaspora that lost everything. And right now are the family member of our church that lost their dad, lost the husband, lost their uncle, lost their cousin. Talk about love. They have to pick up the pieces now. And the pain that's going to, it takes a good year, they tell you, sometimes two years to get through it. And you never leave it. She's already told me, Lupe, she's having a hard time. They live up on 70. They travel 70 all the time. And they've, somebody's already put a marker for Manny where he passed away. She's going to have to pass that every day. She says, Pastor Bob, I haven't gone home yet. I feel for her. 
I can't tell her to go home. But the reminder's there. And it's only through the love of Christ that she's going to be able to survive and sustain. Look at verse 23. Having been born again now, Peter brings it out clearly, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word of God that stays forever. We have this beautiful born-again experience that we find in John chapter 3, verse 3 and verse 7. That story of Nicodemus and Jesus. It is so beautiful. This experience through Jesus Christ is not a corruptible, and the word is decaying or perishable seed, but a seed that is incorruptible, undecaying, unperishable, immortal, a seed This seed is Christ. How do I do this? How do I know this? Because Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 15. Because of the power of the resurrection. How do I know this? As I read the word, as as I study the word. The more I come and I grab and I get from the word of God. The more the spirit of the Lord. Listen. Listen convinces me, convinces me. Serving Christ for the last 30 years, I could never go back to the sins of ignorance. We're set free, church, set free. I want you to turn to this passage because I want you to mark it. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 12 and I believe that Paul is the writer of the book of Hebrews, and he brings it out so clearly, the power of God's word. Excuse me. Now, one of the scholars that I read said this about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word discovers our condition, our condition of sin. The more I read God's word, the more I got into God's word, I recognized that I'm a sinful man. The more you come and you hear the word of God, you recognize you're a sinful man, a sinful woman. But praise God that I can come to Christ freely. I come to that born again experience. And how do I know? But because of the power of God's word. Look at Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and it's powerful. How many times somebody, oh, that's a dead word. That's an Old Testament word of God. The word is alive. The word is alive. He says here, For the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and joints and marrow, and is the discerner, listen, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How many times when you've opened the word of God, you've come to this church, or you go to another church, or you turn on the radio and you hear the preacher, you turn on the television and you hear the preacher, and the word of God pierces your heart. It cuts. Paul writes here, it's a two-edged sword. It cuts as it goes in, and it cuts as it goes out. That's the power of God's word. Now, I read God's word before I was a Christian. It sounded good. I love the stories of David and Goliath. Hey, tell me that story. It's cool. I like it. I love the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Tell tell me that again. He wasn't eaten by the lions. I can't believe it, man. I love those stories. But then you come to Saving Grace, you realize they're true stories. They're true stories. The kids in the back learned the little nursery rhymes. You remember them. Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. All of a sudden, you're five years old. You're back at a summer camp. You're back at a vacation Bible school. You remember. You're back at catechism. You remember. It doesn't leave us, church. God's word is in our hearts. And hopefully, it brings us to the place of saving grace. Now, we're going to come to the conclusion. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, Again, I have to remind you, Peter, a simple fisherman, called to preach uh, not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews. How could he have such knowledge? Peter knew his Old Testament word. He's going to quote these last two verses are from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Earlier, he was proclaiming from Leviticus chapter 11. Very knowledgeable through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He begins here in verse 24, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away. Those of you that plant things and you're all taking care of the flower, but sooner or later, fades away. This body one day is going to fade away. We're here temporal, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're just passing through. This is just a, a short time span. We were studying in the Old Testament, the time before the flood. They were living, are you ready for this? Talk about, you know, social security. Let's talk about retirement. Some of them were living eight to 900 years, but they still died. They died. My grandparents, all four of them, they're dead. Some of yours are dead. Now, we hope that we get to see a full life. And our full lives today, some of them get into the 80s and 90s, but they're dead. I'm always listening for that. The oldest person in the world. And they held the record for about a month, and then they died. You don't last forever. This is just temporal. This body is temporal, just like the flower that's going to fade away. Isaiah is speaking about all mankind. It's like the grass and all its glory, all its honor. One day, the grass is going to fade. You know, I love buying flowers for my wife. And you initially put out the whatever, 20, 30, 40 bucks. And it looks good for a couple of days. And all of a sudden, your 30, 40 bucks are going like this. Hmm. And you feel like, honey, let's just go to McDonald's and get 40 bucks worth of hamburgers. But it's not the same, right? So we buy the flowers. I got to say nice things. Keep going here, Bob. <laughs> verse 25, the conclusion of Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. But the word of the Lord, listen, the word of the Lord, what we're studying here this morning, the word of the Lord endures, that last, that abides forever. Now this is the word which the gospel was preached, the good news to you. There's a lot of things that are temporal. When I was a kid, the hula hoop was everything. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Here comes Chubby Checker, he's doing, you know, Come on. It only lasts for a season. Even the yo-yo, what happened to it? I know it's still around, but where are they? Now everybody has to have all these mechanical toys. What's that all about? What happened to a football and a basketball and a baseball? That's it. But everything changes. And everything fades away. But God's word does not fade. Again, it's powerful. And it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And it cuts to the depth of man, to the bones, to the marrow. And I'll tell you what. If you allow God's word to cut, it will cut. God is the best surgeon that I know. He will cut, and then he will heal you. He takes away the bad, and he replaces it with love and compassion and grace. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. It's a way of life. Holiness is a separation from your sinful nature and now consecrated unto God. That's all it is. And how do you know? But by studying the word of God. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your precious word. Isaiah tells us that your word will not come back void. Father, bless your beautiful people that have come here this morning. Lord, little Ava, this little sweet child, bless her, Lord. And Lord, one day that I would live long enough to hear that she is serving you. What a blessing. Because the Bible says nothing is impossible with you, Lord. And Father, this morning before we leave I'd like to give that opportunity. Maybe there are those that are here visiting, those that are passing through, whatever it might be. You've never given your life to Christ. Today is the day of your salvation. I'm not asking you to join Calvary Chapel. I'm asking you to come to the cross, come to saving grace. If that's you this morning, you've never received Christ, and you'd like to do that right there in the comfort of your chair, in your seat, 
Raise your hand and I'll say a simple prayer of faith. I'm not even going to ask you to come up. Anybody would like to receive Christ this morning, please raise your hand real quick. Anybody. Before we close. I see your hand, ma'am, right there in the middle. Anybody else would like to receive Christ as this lady raised her hand? Anybody else real quick before we end? Praise the Lord. Then let's pray for this dear saint that raised her hand. Father, we thank you, Lord. Your word, Isaiah said again, it will not come back void. Uh, Lord, in the book of Hebrews, your word is powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Your word is what we have to hang on to, Lord. And so, Father, thank you for this woman, this dear saint. She raised her hand not to Calvary Chapel, not to Pastor Bob, but to you, Lord. She acknowledges you. She is a sinner, and she needs you desperately, Lord. Father, I ask you to forgive her of her sins, past, present, and future. I ask you, Lord, to come into her life. I ask you to come in abode and tabernacle in her life. Lord, I ask you to fill her with the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask you to give her a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Give her a hunger and a thirst for your word. And so, Father, bless her as she comes into the family of God. And, Father, we pray for the remainder of the body of Christ here. Lord, we ask your blessing this morning. Bless us far and above and beyond that we can even imagine, Lord. Open up the windows of heaven and pour out your blessing. And, Father, we pray that you would bless the offerings this morning. As you've given to us, Lord, we give back a portion. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.